This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. If you brought your own Bible, then you'll be able to use that one, and that'll be a great help to you. If you didn't bring your own Bible, then a hardback black one like this will be in a seat back close by. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 14, it's on page 868, 868. I'd like to ask you some questions to start off today. When you're having gospel conversations with your family or your friends, what are you aiming for? What do you want to see happen? Do you want them to attend church with you next Sunday? Do you want to hear them admit that they've sinned? Do you want them to say to you that they really do believe in Jesus so that you don't have to bring this conversation up anymore? When missionaries cross geographic and language barriers, what should they be aiming for? Should they invite people to make decisions for Christ? Should they confront false religious beliefs and practices? Should they authoritatively preach and teach the Bible? Or should they devote most of their time to social programs, disaster relief, and community relationships? How about churches in East Texas? What about FBC Diana? How will we measure the success of this local church at the end of the year? Will we be successful in 22 if we start at least one new ministry program? Will we be successful if we measure our success by the amount of money we take in? How about the number of visitors we see? Or maybe the number of baptisms we observe? Will we be successful if we've gained 10 new church members in 22? What if we only gained four? What if we have a net loss of 10? And what if we, missionaries, churches, everyday Christians, aren't getting what we want? Should our method of evangelism and discipleship change in order to produce better results? Is that what we see the Christians on the pages of the New Testament doing when we read through their experiences? Well, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were sent on a missionary journey by the church in Antioch. We read about this some Sundays ago. And of course, it was not only the church there in Antioch that sent them out, but it was the Holy Spirit himself. That's Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Paul and Barnabas, they first came to the island of Cyprus, where they preached the gospel from coast to coast. You can read about that also in the early part of Acts chapter 13. And Luke doesn't tell us very much about the responses that they got, except that a Gentile government official believed the teaching of the Lord, whereas a Jewish false prophet stood against it. Next, Paul and Barnabas traveled to a town called Perga, in Pamphylia. This is Acts chapter 13 still. And then they later traveled, still in Acts 13, to a town called Antioch in Pisidia. Now this is not to be confused with the Antioch of Syria, which is where they started their mission trip back at the beginning of Acts 13. It was a different Antioch. Now it's been a few weeks since we were last in Acts, but do you remember how Paul and Barnabas left that last town they were in, that town of Antioch? 
They preached the gospel there and they were even invited to come back on the next Sabbath day to preach again. But how did it go? Can you remember? Look there if you're in Acts 14 with me and just look up a little bit to the last few verses of Acts 13 and we can get a fresh uh, memory of it. Uh, Verse 48 says that some rejoiced and glorified God and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But then verse 50 says that at least some of the Jewish folks in that town incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas and to drive them out of their district. One commentator said of this passage that Paul and Barnabas had an unprosperous and unlucky beginning, not only having been expelled out of Antioch, but also forced to shake off the dust from their feet. This is to show the leaders of Antioch condemned Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas, too, showed a gesture of God's judgment on those who expelled them. So what would they do next? Well, at the very end of Acts 13, verse 51 says that they went to Iconium. But what would they do there? Would they change their tactics? Would they lay low for a while? Would they make plans to head back home? Well, let's find out. Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, just this first interaction. And we'll get to the other verses next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, Let's stand together. One of the ways we show respect for God's word is we stand while we read the primary passage. Thanks for standing up with me. And I'll read Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by, the, by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to, to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Thank you, word. Thank you Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, the main point that I am aiming to uh, draw out of this passage, what I, what I think is the point of this passage being included here is that the Christian mission is to live as faithful witnesses, kind of holding up Paul and Barnabas as exemplary Christian witnesses in this, in this respect. Expecting opposition and even division and wisely avoiding the worst if possible. I'll explain that main point as we simply walk through the text. For those who'd like to take notes, uh, if writing that main point down is, is uh, something you're not able to do in such a brief period of time, once again, don't worry, it's in the bulletin for you on that inside right-hand flap. You can see it there. And if you'd like to take notes, there are going to be four points today. The first, the mission and the method continued. Secondly, the opposition continued. Thirdly, divine endorsed division. We see this division taking place. We're going to dive into that a bit. And then fourth and finally, prudent faithfulness. Prudent faithfulness. Well, without any further introduction, let's get straight to it. Back up to verse 1 of our passage this morning in Acts chapter 14. The mission and the method continued. When Paul and Barnabas left Antioch because of persecution, they came 
to this town of Iconium. And verse 1 tells us they did the same thing in Iconium that they had done at Antioch. They entered the, the Jewish synagogue and they spoke. And we are to assume that the speaking they did in the Jewish synagogue there in Iconium was the same kind of preaching that they had done in the Jewish synagogue of Antioch. And their speaking would have included the same content from town to town. So right out of the gate, we see that persecution that they had experienced there in Antioch, it seemed to have had absolutely no effect whatever on either their missionary efforts or their methods. They had been sent from their home church, or their home church back in Antioch of Syria as missionaries. And their mission, their purpose, their aim was to preach the gospel to those who did not understand it, to those who did not yet believe it. And when faced with persecution, they didn't feel sorry for themselves or even try to establish some form of political protection. Instead, they seemed to expect that some would receive the gospel well, while others would reject it and even oppose it. Friends, we're far enough away from Jesus' earthly life and ministry that we can sometimes forget that he was wrongly accused. He was scandalously condemned by a form of mob justice. And he was shamefully crucified as a disturber of the peace among Jewish and Roman society. First century Christians had no illusions that they would be treated better than their master. But we tend to expect the opposite. If we're honest, many of us expect a warm welcome and a happy embrace from the worldly culture around us. Brothers and sisters, there is no promise in the Bible that your worldly friends will love you just because you love them enough to talk about Jesus. In fact, the Bible promises that Christians and promises Christians that their worldly neighbors, their unbelieving political leaders, the earthly economic movers and shakers will generally express hatred toward them, especially when it becomes clear that Christians are citizens of an otherworldly kingdom with an allegiance to an otherworldly king. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi later on, saying, It has been granted to you, this is Philippians 1.29, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering for the sake of Christ is not just the lot of some Christians in some places, but it is the biblical expectation of every Christian everywhere. No doubt some Christians will suffer more for following Christ in this world than others. But we will all endure at least some hostility from the world when we set our aim to live not merely as Americans, not merely as conservatives or liberals, not merely as Republicans or Democrats, but to live as faithful Christians. This reality not only shaped the early Christians' perspective, they expected persecution, it also shaped their method of evangelism. They didn't change their methods simply because they got bad results in one town and got good results in another. Rather, their methods stayed exactly the same wherever they went. Because they knew that the means by which God has designed to bring about the conversion of sinners is the preaching of the gospel. And of course, we're told there in verse 1 that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. 
a very short way that Luke tells us about what the good response, the positive response was there in Iconium. Now, there's certainly more that we will consider today from our passage, but let's just notice the simple and profound truth that's already staring us right in the face, and we're still in verse 1. Paul and Barnabas, they faced persecution in Antioch because they preached the gospel there. Then they went to Iconium and they set up shop doing the exact same thing. Why? Were they gluttons for punishment? Were they just, were they just contentious Christians who were looking for a theological fight? And this is what they, this is what they do to have fun? No, they were followers of Jesus Christ and knew that the Messiah had come. And they knew that that changed everything. They knew that Jesus purchased the salvation of sinners at the cross. And they knew that Jesus was the only Savior for guilty sinners. And they also knew that Jesus had been raised as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. And they knew that Jesus was coming soon to judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed affirms. So they preached the gospel and they called people to repentance and to faith. They told them, repent, turn from sin and believe. Now, brothers and sisters, don't we know the same truths that they knew then? Don't we know that Jesus is both the Savior and the Lord? Don't we know that Jesus saves repentant sinners and judges unrepentant ones? Don't we know that Jesus lived and died and rose again? And don't we know that Jesus is coming soon both to rescue and to condemn? Then, brothers and sisters, may God help us, knowing the same truths that they did, to preach and talk about and call our own family and friends to repent and to believe, regardless of what opposition or ridicule or even persecution we might face. Paul and Barnabas, they set a great example of Christian witness in the world, even as they faced opposition in Iconium, just as they had in Antioch. But let's look now to verse 2, and let's consider the ground or the basis of the gospel opposition we see in our passage. And so not only verse number 2, but point number 2, opposition continued. Verse 2 tells us that there were some unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles against the brothers. Now, the word brothers here is very likely referring not just to Paul and Barnabas. They're specifically mentioned as apostles in, in this passage. But it's likely referring to the, all of those who repented and believed. Those, those were told about in verse 1 who were uh, among the, uh, both Jews and the Greeks who believed the gospel. In fact, uh, Luke tells us that at some point there was a division in the town that was drawn along the lines of those who believed, in other words, the brothers, and those who did not. Now, we'll explore this division a bit more in just a bit, but let's notice here how bizarre unbelievers can sometimes act when they are defending their unbelief. The Gentiles of Iconium were typical Greek idolaters. The Phrygians believed that Iconium was founded by the mythological Perseus, who defeated the city's ancient enemies by using the head of a gorgon, which turned to stone anyone uh, who looked upon its eyes. Think about the 1981 Clash of the Titans. It's that kind of a thing. In other words, they embraced the full pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses, and they even had specific gods which were nearest and dearest to their own city. And the city itself was called Iconium, 
The Greek word icon is the word from which we get icon. It means image or idol. Now, first century Jews, on the other hand, were no friend of idolaters. Most of them were not too concerned about most of the Mosaic Covenant, but they did maintain observable customs like the Sabbath and the social conformity to others of the commandments, though not, no, though not actual conformity. So rejecting idols of any form, which is the, uh, the second commandment, and keeping the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment, the Mosaic Covenant, were not only religious duties, but these were also cultural and political traditions that would have distinguished Jews from Gentiles. It's how you know the difference, culturally speaking. And yet, those unbelieving Jews in Iconium joined and even stirred up idolatrous Gentiles to unite with them in their opposition to the gospel and in their opposition against those who were associated with it. No doubt, uh, both the unbelieving Jews and the idolatrous Gentiles realized that Christianity was in direct conflict with both of them. They had a common enemy. The gospel claims that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Mosaic Covenant is obsolete. And the gospel claims that all forms of idolatry are satanic and must be abandoned immediately. This confronted unbelieving Jews and idolatrous Greeks in the same way. They both needed to repent and to believe. They needed to turn from their sin and to submit to Jesus as Lord. Friends, there is one God and Jesus is his prophet, priest, and king. But this message is only good news to those who believe it. Paul, speaking about his evangelistic ministry later in Troas and in Macedonia, he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He said, thanks be to God who through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, of Christ, everywhere. That as this missionary effort goes out, so does the fragrance of Christ. It's kind of this imagery he's using there. For we, he continues on, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Both smell the aroma of Christ. But listen to how he describes it. To one, the fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, those who believe the message of the gospel, they hear it and there is rejoicing at the promise of forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. They hear the gospel and they smell the fragrance of life. But to those who do not believe, the gospel is an announcement of judgment. They are guilty of their sin and God has condemned them. They hear the message of the gospel and they smell the stench of death. Friends, the gospel that provokes opposition is one that confronts sinners and calls for repentance. It announces the true king and calls for a new allegiance. The biblical gospel says that the worldly ambition and political power and military might are all temporary and futile. It says to those who seek to build up such kingdoms that your efforts are in the end not as important as where you stand with Christ. The biblical gospel says that all that stuff that the world thinks is most valuable is really cotton candy 
It looks fluffy and big, but in the end it's air. And it doesn't satisfy. And if you eat too much of it, it just gives you a bellyache. And this gospel is not always received well by those we love. Sometimes it smells like death to them. Sometimes they hate us for bringing it up. And they sometimes avoid us so they can try to stop thinking about it. But we must remember that the smell of the gospel is the product of one's perception of it and not the other way around. In other words, the ones who hate the gospel, the ones who smell it as death, they don't reject God and his Christ because of the stench of the gospel or because you're particularly annoying, though you might be. But unbelievers think the gospel stinks because they reject God and his Christ. The one comes before the other. Well, in Acts chapter 14, the unholy alliance of idolatrous Greeks and unbelieving Jews only grew in disagreement with the Christians in Iconium. But Paul and Barnabas continued preaching. And God even granted miraculous confirmation of their message until the whole thing came to a head. And that's what we'll read about in the next several verses. So this is point number three now, uh, looking at verses three and four. Divinely endorsed division. Now, as I've mentioned already, Paul and Barnabas, when they came to Iconium, they had been driven out of the district of Antioch right before it. That was the end of Acts chapter 13. Now, the opposition in Antioch was overt. It was public and it was hostile. In verses three to four of our passage this morning, the unbelieving opposition hadn't yet reached that level. In fact, there seems to have been a, a growing clarity in the division between the who's who uh, of believers and unbelievers before there was any real move toward hostility. Let me explain uh, what I see and what I mean from verses three and four. Verse three tells us that Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time in Iconium. And depending on your translation, the verse either begins or close to the beginning of the verse, there's the word so or therefore. Now, it seems likely that Paul and Barnabas stayed specifically to encourage and to instruct these Christians in Iconium because of the growing opposition of whatever kind they were facing. So they stayed in order to encourage these Christians as opposition seemed to be growing. At any rate, they did stay for a while. And that's what it says there in verse three. They were speaking boldly for the Lord. Notice here that their reaction to opposition is not to back down or to lighten up, but instead to speak boldly. Again, Paul and Barnabas exemplify courageous and faithful Christianity. They show us what, it's, uh, what it looks like to live as Christ's faithful witnesses in an unfriendly world. Verse 3 also tells us that Christ himself bore witness to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by Paul's and Barnabas' hands. Now, as we've talked about already in our study through the book of Acts, the message preached by the earliest Christians was the good news that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had been promising throughout the Old Testament. This was the way they told the gospel. Now, the message of the gospel and God's promises throughout the Old Testament centered on Christ's atoning sacrifice for sin. God said there would come a child or an offspring who would finally and completely bruise or crush the head of that ancient serpent, the devil, even as that offspring himself would suffer bruising in the process. This is Genesis 3, Revelation 13. And Jesus did 
both suffer under God's judgment for sinners and also triumph over all demonic powers and authorities at the cross. This is what Jesus did at the cross. And also because Jesus was the promised offspring, Genesis 3.3, because he's the better prophet, because he's the perfect priest, because he's the divinely anointed king, and because he's the true Israel, his arrival on the scene of human history marked the beginning of the end, which God had been talking about for centuries. So all of this was, was imported uh, as, as part of the gospel message that was proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. We see that back at the very beginning when sin entered into creation, it brought, it brought God's curse upon everything. In a post-Genesis 3 world, tornadoes ruin homes. People murder one another out of sheer rage. Disease and illness of all sorts devastate us when we least expect. Children are abused by those who are supposed to protect and provide for them. Entire people groups suffer under the boot heel of, tyr- of a tyrannical government. Those with, with access to power and to wealth only use it to gain more for themselves. And dictators destroy apparently peaceful and flourishing cities. This is what it's like to live in a post-Genesis 3 world. But when Jesus came, he announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is the way Jesus preached the gospel during his earthly ministry. The kingdom of God is among you. He began to show all creation, what it will look like when he makes all things new. He made blind men see. He made lame people walk. He made the storm stand still. And he even made dead people come back to life again. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, he commissioned his apostles to be his authoritative witnesses in the world. And he did through them the same sort of miracles he'd already been doing. Friends, God has revealed his gospel in full. And he's done so through what the Bible calls prophets and apostles. Now, these are those men who, 2 Peter 1, 21, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God often validated his spokesmen by granting them what the Bible calls signs and wonders. Miracles like those mentioned in our passage. They showed God's power was at work among them. This is the purpose of the miracles we read about in the New Testament. This is the way we are to understand when we read about such things. If somebody reads about miracles in the Bible and their response is to say, well, how come I don't see stuff like that happening in my own day? Or why don't I expect to see something like that happening in my day? If that's the response that they have, they simply have misunderstood what the Bible is saying. God is telling a bigger story than the temporary healing of ailments. God's love for his people is not demonstrated in helping them get to the grave with a little less pain and sorrow. That's not the story of God's love. Rather, God's love for his people is going to be on full display when Christ returns in the brilliance of his glory to bring about the full renovation of this world, to eradicate sin completely and to grant his people resurrection bodies that will never wear out and that will enjoy the beauty and wonder of a universe at perfect peace forever under his sovereign reign. This appointed king of God. But that's exactly where the rub is for the unbeliever. When the Lord himself 
bore witness of the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. In verse 3, it meant that the Christ they preached was and is truly king. It meant that there was no room for unbelief or idolatry. There was no middle or neutral ground. Verse 4 tells us that the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the unbelieving Jews and some with the apostles. We are to understand here that the division was over the gospel. This isn't because the gospel was bad or because Paul and Barnabas were malicious in their being witnesses to it. But it was because some of the people in the city didn't believe the gospel that Paul and Barnabas preached. They rejected Christ as king and they would not bear to have him as their judge. Have you ever heard somebody tell you doctrine divides? Or you're just being divisive? You're stirring up division? Well, it is true. Doctrine does divide. The gospel, the message of who Christ is and what he did, and the biblical demand for repentance and faith in response to it, these things divide. The gospel divides believer from unbeliever. The gospel divides families and churches and communities. Friends, sometimes Christians can be divisive because they're jerks. And this is a sin. We should avoid it. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that sometimes there'll be folks who are so consistently and unrepentantly divisive that we should expel them. We should excommunicate them from the local church. But sometimes Christians can be accused of being divisive when all they're really doing is preaching the gospel and calling for repentance and faith. Doing that stuff will cause division. And we should not be surprised when we see it. We should be brokenhearted for sure when we see unbelief. And we're certainly horrified when we think about what it means that our loved ones don't believe. But unbelief and division over the gospel are to be expected in this world. And not just somewhere out there, but right here among us in our own families. There's one last point and three more verses to consider this morning. We've raised up Paul and Barnabas as exemplary Christians. They were bearing faithful witness to Christ. They seemed to expect opposition from some of those who heard the gospel. And they didn't seem surprised by the division that the gospel produced. Let's turn our attention now to these last three verses and see their wise avoidance of the worst persecution, at least in this passage. Point number four, looking at verses five, six, and seven, prudent faithfulness. This is a really curious part of the passage to me. The division of verse 4 turned into a violent scheme in verse 5. Luke says that both the Gentiles and the Jews made a plan together, even with the rulers or the government officials of Iconium, to mistreat and to stone Paul and Barnabas. But somehow, Paul and Barnabas learn of it before it was fully carried out. Now, before we go any further, I wonder what you expect to see from Paul and Barnabas. What do you expect to be the next thing that happens? They hear about this scheme. They're going to be stoned to death. What does Christian faithful, faithfulness look like when the mob is after you? What would you do in a situation like this? What do you expect some other Christian to do 
when the local government and leading citizens of an area have plotted to kill him or her. We haven't had to think about these things because we've lived in a place where Christianity has has been able to, to have a great deal of freedom. But there are Christians in the world who have to think about this. And it might be that not too distant in the future, we'll have to think about this as well. What do you do? Well, Paul and Barnabas, we read in verse 6, they learned of it and they fled. They packed up their stuff and they ran away. Let's think about this by considering uh, at least three. Uh, there are three facts that I want to point out that help me think through uh, what sort of implications there might be for what Paul and Barnabas did. One, the scheme against Paul and Barnabas was extreme violence. This wasn't just name calling. The unbelievers in Iconium planned to kill them. That's what it means to stone them. And if Paul and Barnabas would have stayed, their mortal lives would have been over. This is their expectation. A second fact about the situation is that Paul and Barnabas were the specific targets of this violent plan. While there were a great number of both Jews and Greeks who believed the gospel, we're told that about in verse 1, these had become Christians in Iconium. They don't appear to have been the targets of the violence. The violence seems to be specifically targeted at Paul and Barnabas. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas, I think, cannot be charged with cowardice because they left behind these other Christians. As a matter of fact, Luke has already told us in this very passage in verse 3 that when the opposition started rising up against the brothers, all the Christians in the area, Paul and Barnabas specifically remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. A third fact about this situation is that Paul and Barnabas did not see this as a depart this departure as an end to their mission in the least. What did they do? Well, Luke tells us that they fled to Lystra and to Derbe, which were also cities in Lyconia, and they continued to preach the gospel, verse 7. Now, this would be like things getting too hot in Orr City for Tony Pierce, the senior pastor of New Hope. And for him and his family, it's unsafe to stay in Orr City so they come on down to Diana to continue doing ministry here for the lost souls in our neighborhoods. It would be a similar uh, travel path. Uh, John Calvin commented on this passage saying that uh, this is the right kind of fear when the servants of Christ do not run willfully into the hands of their enemies to be murdered, and yet they do not abandon their duty. And neither does fear hinder them from obeying God. In other words, the fear of extreme violence acted out personally upon Paul and Barnabas compelled them to wisely avoid the worst of it by escaping to a nearby town for a while. As we'll see in our next passage, it wasn't far enough the mob traveled behind them. But their love for and fear of God, as well as their love for lost sinners, also compelled them. Compelled them to continue preaching the same gospel that, they'd already, that had already gotten them kicked out of one city and gotten their lives threatened in another. If it's possible, they run and preach another day. But they don't run and close their mouths just because they're getting opposition or seeing division. Opposition and division are to be expected in this world. And their mission is to live as faithful 
witnesses of Christ. Avoiding the worst if possible, but faithfully witnessing either way. Now, brothers and sisters, the mission is the same for us and it continues today. Jesus Christ has called all of his disciples, everyone who believes in him, to be disciple-making disciples. This is what the commission of Matthew chapter 28 is all about. So then, while Paul and Barnabas are, are specifically commissioned missionaries to go and bring the gospel across geographic and language barriers, the call to be faithful witnesses of Christ, gospel proclaimers, people who are living in faithfulness to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same call to every Christian everywhere. And we do this by preaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, as Max Stiles says in his little book. We do this by living honest lives of Christian virtue and moral integrity. We not only preach the gospel, speak the gospel, teach it to our friends and family members, but we also live our lives in a way that's not perfect, of course, but that is consistent with what we preach so that the two match up, so that what we say is believable. We do this by speaking and living in alignment with the Bible's teaching. And we expect that opposition and even division will not be unusual. Like Paul and Barnabas in our passage this morning, we will have to count the cost when our safety, when our families when our livelihoods are at stake. And we won't all react the same way. Some of us will do it this way. Some of us will do it that way. And we won't all react the same way every time. In one set of circumstances, we might do this. In other circumstances, we might do that. But we all must prepare and encourage one another as opposition to genuine Christianity turns more and more intense in our own backyards. A good pastor friend of mine talks about tarring the ark, preparing for the flood. This is what Christians have to help each other do. It seems to me in our own experiences, especially in recent decades, past couple of, a couple of centuries in the Western world, Christians have been able to assume that the experiences we've had are the norm for Christians around the world and across human history. But that just isn't true. Opposition and division are normal when it comes to Christian living in an unfriendly world. And so what will we do? Will we live following after these examples that we have of Paul and Barnabas in our passage this morning as faithful Christian witnesses? Understanding that opposition comes, not letting that thwart us in our plans. Not letting, this, not letting that impact us so much so that we live as miserable Christians because, oh no, someone's opposed us again. But rather speaking boldly for the Lord. What we see when division takes place among our own families, maybe even among our own church, that of course these things are sad. We don't celebrate it when it happens. But we recognize these, the, the division is necessary. As doctrine is proclaimed, as the gospel is proclaimed again and again, that there are going to be those who even once said that they believe the gospel, who don't believe it anymore. Don't live in light of it anymore. The division must come. Will we understand our circumstances? Be willing to give one another charity and grace as we all try to put one foot in front of the other. 
when we face different difficulties, some in your life in this way and some in my life in this way, and how we each try to serve Christ best, sometimes making mistakes. May Christ grant us courage. May he grant us wisdom. Above all, my prayer is that he will grant us faithfulness. Would you bow with me and let's pray that he would do just that this morning? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.